Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. We're continuing Christmas at Dogwood, which means that we are um, celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus uh, this uh, every Sunday in December. And uh, we're doing so by going to the Bible and reminding ourselves of the meaning of the birth of Jesus, uh, that we seem to always need to come back and repound those nails and get that clear in our hearts and in our, in our minds. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so the messages that we're bringing uh, this uh, Christmas are about that. From God's Word, explain, let's remember the meaning of the birth of Christ. Pastor John Warnock kicked us off last week by taking us way back to the writings of the prophet Isaiah inspired by God's Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, he, he reminded us of uh, the light of, of Christmas from those magnificent words. Today, I want to jump forward about 800 years uh, to the very first verses that we find in uh, the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1. So if you would take uh, your copy of the scriptures in whatever form you have it, hard copy or digital, turn to the very first book in the New Testament, the gospel of, um, of Matthew. And I want to read selectively out of the first 17 verses. This is God's word. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. We're looking at verses 1, 3, 5, 6, 16, and 17. And this is God's Word. Now, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus does not start with the well-known events that we remember and sing about and we find on our Christmas cards and we talk about. He doesn't begin with the angel. He doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph. He doesn't begin with the star. He doesn't begin with any of these elements that we see so beautifully portrayed uh, behind me uh, here today. He begins way back in the mists of even more ancient times uh, and provides what is to you and me uh, uh, a long, seemingly tedious, let's be honest, maybe even boring uh, introduction. Now, all of you who went to school and took uh, speech or you took writing, uh, your, your professors taught you that every author, every speaker is supposed to begin their book or their essay or their, their talk with an attention-grabbing opener. What's up with Matthew? Did he not go to school? 
I mean, it's a good grief. I mean, most of us lose patience with these verses. Hey, you pay me to study the Bible and teach it to you. And every year when I read the scriptures through, when I come to Matthew 1, 1 through 17, Lynn, I'm tempted to just kind of jump over it. Let's get down here where the action starts. But that would be a mistake uh, because Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is not just about a birth. It's about a coming that was foretold. God had planned the arrival of his son even before he created the universe. Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 tells us. And, and like any good writer, and Matthew was a good writer, inspired by God's spirit, he foreshadowed the great person and being that Jesus would be and what he would do uh, throughout the course of history. So uh, he, we learn much. He introduces the greatest story in history with a genealogy. So therefore, there must be something meaningful there for you and me, something that we learn about the birth of Christ that we might not learn at first glance. And the first thing is this. I've already mentioned it. Christmas is history. The birth of Jesus Christ really happened. This is history. And you and I, therefore, have to deal with it as it is reality, it is true. It really, really happened. Because Matthew um, doesn't begin his account of the birth of Christ with the, the familiar phrase, once upon a time. He doesn't, does he? He does not. He does not do so. That's the way that fairy tales begin. That's the way that um, legends begin and myths begin. That's the way Star Wars begins. I mean, once upon a... It's coming up, you know. It, it, it's a, but hang on, stay with me here. It'll be there in the theaters. Um, and that's the way... It, it's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. He, he does not say once upon a time because the term once upon a time signals to you and me in our culture that this probably didn't really happen, but that it's a great story that will not only entertain us but teach us much. Maybe there's a moral to... Uh, the story. He does not do that. This is not the kind of account that Matthew gives you and me here. He says, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So what, what Matthew is doing, not only to his audience, his audience were the Jews of his day, the, Jew, the unbelieving Jews. And he was in his gospel, he is presenting the case that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, and that they should uh, repent and believe and have life in him in the name of Christ. He's writing to the Jews of the first century, trying to convince them. And so he, say, he says not only to them, but to you and me, this really happened this is history. This is not, uh, these are real people from history that we find in this list here. He's saying Jesus is not a metaphor. Jesus is not a fairy tale. Jesus is not a, a fable. He is real, a real person, and this really, really happened. All of the Bible's accounts of the Christmas story, of the birth of Jesus, are accounts of history. Things that really happened. These are not Aesop's fables. And uh, now, now Christmas, of course, is way much more than uh, just the birth of Jesus. And it doesn't tell us all that there is to know about the person and work of Jesus. The Gospels do. You go on, we, we know that Jesus must go to the cross. 
And Jesus must rise from the dead. He must make a way for you and for me. But if you're here today and you're here because it's Christmas season and you're maybe uh, you're a spiritual seeker, you're, you're checking out the claims of Christ and you, you, you look around and you say, well, obviously there are a lot of people who take this stuff kind of seriously. Um, how do I go about taking this seriously? Here's how you begin. This is not everything, but you must begin by believing the report of what has happened in history. That this, is, this happened. You must believe uh, the facts about Jesus. Did God really become a human being? Well, the, Matthew says he did. Did Jesus really live and suffer and die to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin and was able to do so? Matthew said, yes, that really happened. Did he really rise triumphantly from the dead and is alive today? Matthew says, yes, it's rooted in history. And you and I have to deal with that as he states it. Uh, we, we, we have no, either, either this is true, this is legit, the Bible is authoritative as God's word, or it's not, and therefore go you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. Just make something up and live the way best you can because ain't none of us getting out of here alive. So we have to deal with it as he presents it, as, as history. And we learn it from this genealogy. Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is not... Once upon a time. Now, we also learn something else from this genealogy. We learn this, that Christmas turns the world's values upside down. The birth of Jesus took the values of this world. What, what our culture, what our world says really matters in this life and turns it upside down. Uh, and he does so in this genealogy several ways, not the least of which is he names five significant women in the genealogy. Now let me let me let me set it up this way. We've got to remember the the culture and the society in which Matthew was living and writing uh, over two thousand years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. You and I live in a in an individualistic uh, culture, uh, and and in our individualistic culture, we we have ways that we want to recommend ourselves to other people other organizations, schools, potential uh, employers, you know, resumes, we call it. What's our resume? We want to recommend ourselves, and we do so by listing our education, our degrees. We list our work experience. We list our uh, accomplishments that recommends us. This says, this is who I am in the best possible light, and here's how we, we do that. Now, it, it, that is not how it was done in Matthew's day. You see, that society was different. It was a communal culture. It was a, um, a clannish culture, a tribal uh, culture, a very family-oriented uh, society. And so the way one recommended themselves was by their genealogy. This genealogy, uh, ancient genealogies were resumes. They, they were, we, we, I'm going to use the term, a genealogical resume. And that's what Matthew is presenting for Jesus here. You see, in those times, it was your family. It were your ancestors. It were your roots. It was your, they were your pedigree, your clan, your tribe was your pedigree. The people that you were connected to now and in your past, um, that constituted your or one's resume. 
And so a genealogy was a way in that day of saying to the world, here I am, this is who I am. Let me introduce myself to uh, you. Now, it's interesting uh, to note that historians have discovered that people tinkered with their resumes back then like they do, like we do today. You, you know, you know. We want to present our, we kind of want to leave out some of that stuff that doesn't present us in the best possible light, like, you know, some of our academic background. You know, I've, I've told, I've finally gone public with you years ago that I loved Algebra 1 so much I took it twice in high school. <clears throat> well, I t- Sean, I tend not to put that on a resume, you know. Now, so, you know, we, 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 we tinker sometimes even kind of illegally with our resumes and uh, we've discovered in our culture. They did it in that uh, culture too. One of the most famous guys in the biblical world was Herod the Great, King Herod. Uh, It's widely known that he went back and deleted some people out of his public genealogy because he did not want to be associated with those, the riffraff in his past. And so uh, people did that very, that very thing to present themselves to onlookers in the, in the, with the, the highest quality and respectability possible. But Matthew goes against the grain of, his own, of history. He does not do that with the genealogical resume of our Lord Jesus. In fact, this genealogy is shockingly different from the prominent people we find in, in the history of the day. First of all, uh, there were five women listed in the genealogy. All of them we are calling mothers of Jesus. He was descended from these these women. Now, this will not strike you and me as modern readers as unusual. But remember that was a that ancient society was patriarchal. It was male uh, dominated, and in that culture, women were almost never. Not, not, you can find one or two, but almost never included in the genealogy of, uh, of someone. They just weren't. Uh, because in that day, women, you could have called women in that day gender outsiders. Pushed to the margins of society with very, with very little rights and privileges and, and honor left out. Left out. Um, not only that... But most of the women in the resume of Jesus here were Gentiles. Now think about that a second. So Matthew's going to start out to try to convince the Jews that they should believe in Jesus. And he's going to do so by including prominent Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus? No. I said, wait a minute, Matthew, didn't you study rhetoric and persuasion at all? You're going to turn off your audience right off the bat here. But no, 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 he includes uh, two Canaanites and a Moabitess in the genealogy of, uh, of Jesus. And to the ancient Jews in their religion, those nations, the Canaanites and, the, and Moab, that the, <clears throat> the Moabite people were considered unclean. Spiritual cooties is kind of what they, you know, nope, thank, nope, nothing. They're out, they are left out. We're not to touch them. Not going to have anything to do with them. So there were racial outsiders, ethnic outsiders included in the, um, the genealogy. To the ancient Jews, none of these people were allowed to come to the houses of worship. Not the tabernacle, the portable tent in the wilderness, nor the temple after it was constructed. They were not even allowed to enter 
because you're unclean. You're left out. Sorry. It's terrible to be you. And uh, so there were these racial outsiders, yet they're included in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, here's the most surprising aspect of this genealogical resume of Jesus that's introducing the Christmas story by naming the particular women that Matthew named along with a couple of the males that are in here, he, is in, he intentionally brings to the mind of the Jewish people of the day some of the most sordid, immoral, nasty, filthy incidents recorded in the Bible. <gasps> you mean there's nasty, filthy things in the Bible? Yeah, read it. Yeah, there's a, I came across a lady who's not a believer years ago, and she's very well educated. And I said, well, do you let your kids read the Bible? No. She said, it's too earthy. It is. And, and, and Matthew brings up some of these shocking, immoral incidents uh, that are recorded in the, uh, in the Scripture. For example, look at verse 3. He says there, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah. By Tamar. Now let's recall what happened there. Long story short, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And uh, Judah had been, it's very clear in the story, he had been quite unjust to his, he was, he was immoral as well. He'd been unjust to his daughter-in-law. Well, she tricked him into sleeping with her. Well, this was an incestuous, this was an act of incest which everywhere in the Bible is prohibited by the law of God. And though even though Jesus himself was actually descended from Perez, not Zerah, Matthew includes both of them, plus he includes Judah, plus he includes Tamar. He intentionally inserts them into the genealogy to make sure that the whole sorry, sinful story comes to the forefront of the mind of his Jewish uh, readers. He's saying, and it's out of this sinful, dysfunctional family that the Messiah came. Wow. Out of this sinful, sorry, dysfunctional family, the Messiah came. There's another incident. Look in verse 5. It says, uh, Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Well, Rahab was not only a Canaanite, which meant she was unclean and considered a racial, ethnic outsider, never be able to enter into the family of God, but she was also a prostitute. It was out of this sinful, dysfunctional family that Jesus the Messiah was born, that the Christmas story uh, comes. But take a look at verse 6. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Now, finally we're getting a little action here. Here it says that in the line, in the history, are in the roots of Jesus is King David. Ah, everyone would want royalty in their resume. King David royalty, yeah, that's good. However, Matthew adds uh, what many scholars believe is one of the great moral understatements in the Bible. He says, David was the father of Solomon by Uriah's wife. He's saying, by another man's wife. By another man's wife. Now, if you know nothing about the biblical history, you might find this strange. Well, why didn't he give her her name? Well, her name was Bathsheba. Uh, and, and Matthew is, is not wanting to, 
focus on Bathsheba, he's summoning to our minds and to the minds of his Jewish readers uh, to recall one of the great terrible tragic chapters in the history spiritual history and political history of the nation of, of Israel. So here's the story. When David was a, before he was king, when he was a fugitive running for his life from King Saul, he was out in the wilderness and there were a group of loyal men, friends and soldiers who decided God's already said one day David's going to be king. We're going with what God says. And they went out into the... They risked everything to align themselves with David, protect him, provide for him, do all that they could to help him. The Bible refers to them as David's mighty men. You can read about them in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And one of those mighty men was a man by the name of Uriah. Uriah. He was one he was one of the best friends that David ever had on the planet. Risked everything, including his own life, to uh to take care of his friend uh David. David owed Uriah his very life. And yet, years later, after David was king, the day came when he looked upon Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and he wanted her, and he arranged to sleep with her, and then he arranged to have Uriah killed in battle so that he could marry her, and he did. And one of their children later on was a child, little boy by the name of Solomon. And Jesus is descended from Solomon. Now, do you know why David leaves off Bathsheba's name? It's not, a, it's not a slight against her. It's a cosmic slap in the face of King David saying, you sorry outfit. And yet out of that sinful, dysfunctional family, Christmas came. The birth of Christ. Jesus, Jesus came. So... So here we are. Here we are in this genealogical resume. We have moral outsiders, adulterers, adulteresses, incestuous relationships, prostitutes. And we're reminded that even the most prominent male uh, members of this genealogy were moral goof-ups or moral failures. Uh, We also have in this genealogy cultural outsiders, uh, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, uh, some by the law of Moses even excluded from the presence of God, yet they are all publicly acknowledged as the ancestors of Jesus in this genealogy. So I've said all that to say, answer the question, what, Pastor, what does this mean? So say it with me. Pastor? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So here we go. Here we go. Here, here's, the, here's the big takeaway this morning. You ready? It's this. This shows us many things, but first and foremost, it shows us that people who are excluded, people who are excluded can be brought into the family of Jesus. All people who are excluded by culture, by respectable society, even what appear, people who appear to be excluded by the law of God can be included in the family of Christ. Look at me. Your pedigree does not matter. It does not matter what you have done. It doesn't even matter whether you've murdered people or not. 
If you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, the grace of Jesus can and will cover your sin and unite you with him in his forever, his forever family. Now, you see, in ancient times, there was a concept called ceremonial uncleanness. And if, if, one, if the ancient Jews wanted to stay holy in, in relationship to God, if they wanted to stay rightly connected to God uh, or to be respectable or to be good, you had to avoid contact with anything or any person that was considered unholy. We've already talked about the Canaanites and the Moabites and all the other ites who were the left out ites. Um, they were not considered holy. And so you didn't, you didn't touch them. Because the idea of, of uncleanness was that it was contagious. If you came into contact with a person or a thing that was unclean, you caught it. You caught it. You became unclean, un, unholy. Now remember the word holy fundamentally means is a, is a word of ownership. Holy means God owns it. When you say a person is holy, they're saying, I am fully owned by God. I belong to God. Uh, I, he, he is my God, He is my owner, He's my controller, I belong to... Holy means set apart for God. Well, Jesus, the birth of Jesus comes, and He takes the concept that the culture had about what is holy and what is not, and He turns it just exactly upside down. For you see, the holiness of Jesus cannot be contaminated by you and me. Uh, rather, His holiness infects us by our contact with Him, when we have contact with Him, and He makes us holy. He makes us holy. You come to Him, this, this genealogical resume is shouting to you and me. You come to Jesus uh, no matter what. You come to Him no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how morally stained and stinking you are, and He will make you as pure and clean and white as the snow that we woke up to yesterday morning. He says it right there in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. He says it right there. Now, on the other hand, let's look back at King David a second. You ready? Let's look back at King David. You see, he had, in, in his life, he had all of the culture, the world's power credentials. He had them all. He was a man in that day, not a woman. He was a Jew, not a Gentile. He was royalty, not common. He was rich, not poor. He had everything commending him, yet Matthew shows us that he too can be in the family of Jesus only by grace. Only by grace. None of these power credentials matter in God's economy. Only by the grace of of Christ. And his evil deeds were worse than, than anything done by any of the women in the history of Jesus, yet there he stands, right there, listed in the family. Here's where we get confused. It is not the good people who are in the family of God and the bad people who are left out. Now listen closely, because all people everywhere get this confused. It's not the good people who are included in the family of God and the bad people who are left out. See, we get that all confused. We say that well, that's what we believe, but God said, what? There are no good people. Oh. 
So it's all, so all people are left out. Yeah, that's what he means when he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, where I grew up, the, 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 the very loose Harrelson County, Georgia translation of that, one of my old redneck friends would say, what he's saying is, is every single one of us have ripped our britches with God. Yeah, the loose, it's in the Greek down there somewhere. That's what he means. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory. We are all in trouble. We're, we're all in trouble. And um, so Christmas, that we celebrate the birth of Jesus means that it is only what Jesus has done for you that can give you right standing with God. Only what Jesus has done. There is no one then, not the greatest, the, even the greatest human being, who does not need the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, not even the worst human being, who can fail to receive the grace of Jesus if they have repentance and faith in Him. Merry Christmas, no kidding. That's, that's what He is introducing to you and me here. Uh, Christmas, me, the birth of Jesus means that through faith alone in Jesus alone that prostitutes and kings, male and female, Gentile and Jews, one race and another race, moral and immoral people can all sit down as equals, either equally sinful and lost or, through faith in Christ, equally accepted and loved and included in God's family, equally forgiven, equally included, equally accepted in God's family. You say, well, Keith... What must I, so what must I do then to be forgiven? What must I do to be accepted? What must I do to be loved? What must I do to be included in the family of Jesus? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you and I must repent of our sins. You must repent of your sins. That means that you change your mind about your sin, that you, it is really serious. You stop downplaying your own sinfulness. You stop underestimating how bad you are in God's eyes and you stop overestimating how good you are on your own in God's eyes and you take my buddy's definition and say, I have ripped my pants with God. I am in trouble. You change your mind about your sinful. That's what it means when we say this is offensive. We, it is an offense to our own morality, our own goodness. We realize I'm not good. I'm in such a condition that someone had to come and punch a hole in eternity and invade this earth and in my place go to the cross and die to pay for my sins so that I could be forgiven and accepted by God. I'm in trouble. We acknowledge our own sinfulness and we also acknowledge... We change our mind about our own self-righteousness. That I am not good enough. People ask me from time to time about specific sins. Pastor, will this sin send somebody to hell? Or does this sin send somebody to hell? Or does this sin send somebody to hell? And so there's only one sin that sends anybody to hell. Self-righteousness. There's only one. Self-righteousness. Which means... I don't need someone to die for me. I don't need Jesus. I'm, those, some people out there do. You know, those guys over there, they need it. I don't need it. I'm okay. I'll call on God. That's called self-right. I'm okay. I am righteous enough in and of myself. I'm okay. That's self 
righteousness. We change our mind about that. Repentance means we change our mind about our sin, our self-righteousness, and our self-directed life. And we turn and realize that we're going into darkness and death, and we turn to Christ. I've told you before, it's like the day I was downtown going to the hospitals, and I'm not thinking I turned the wrong way downtown on a one-way street and immediately was facing three lanes of oncoming traffic. I think I was on Spring Street north of the Varsity, that other holy site downtown. And they were, you know, and I'm like, whoa, what have I done? And all of a sudden I realized not only was I going the wrong way, I realized I was in danger of destruction. And I repented. I did a U-turn right there in the street and went the right way toward light and life. Yes, and that's what we do when we repent of our sins. I realize this self-righteousness and ignoring my own sinfulness, I am, I'm headed toward what the Bible says, death and destruction. And I'm turning away from that and turning to Jesus, the light of the world. I'm turning to Him. We must repent of our sin. We must then believe in Jesus. Now, I told you that this genealogy of Jesus already tells us we must start with Jesus by believing the facts about Jesus, the historical facts about Jesus, who he is, that we believe that he did come, uh, God come in the flesh, that he lived a perfect sinless life and went therefore to the cross and died in my place because of my sin, for my sin. He's the only satisfactory substitute and sacrifice for my sin, and that he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be, can do what he claimed to do. We believe the facts about Jesus, but we also place our active trust in Jesus to forgive us and accept us and give us right standing with God. It's like the airplane illustration I give you all the time. You can get a reservation, you can get to the airport, you can get your boarding pass, you can check your luggage, you can get all the way to the gate. You can believe that plane's going to take you to to Los Angeles, but unless you do one more thing, the plane's going without you. You've got to place active trust in the plane, walk on it, get in the seat, buckle yourself in, and let it take you to your destination. That's faith. That's biblical faith. You must do the same thing with Christ. You must say, not only do I believe in, I need it, and I give myself to you. Some of you are ready to do that for the very first time today. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that very thing. If that's you, you're in a safe place. We're in church. Most of the people in this room have already made this commitment. And they, they love that people are making it. But if that's you, and you'd say, I got it. I want to repent of my sin and place my faith in Jesus today. I want to pray for you. But I want you just to stand up right where you are. Just go ahead. It's a little gutsy, but you're, you're, in a, the safest, you're in church. You're in the safest place in the world to make this a marker. Is that you? Stand up. Anybody in the balcony? Am I missing someone? Yep, everybody's looking at you and everything. Just come on. Anyone? Okay. You might not be ready for that yet, but here's what I want you to do. Let me lead you in a time of prayer. God's more concerned with the attitude of your heart than he is the words of your mouth. So this, there's nothing magic about these words in this prayer, but if this expresses the attitude of your heart, then you pray it from your heart sincerely to the Lord Jesus. Pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I admit I have gone my own way.
I have sinned with my thoughts and words and actions. I'm sorry for my sins. I turn from them in repentance. I believe you died for me, taking my sins in your body on the cross. Thank you for your great love. I now open the door of my life. Come in, Lord Jesus. Come in as my Savior and forgive and cleanse me. Come in as my Lord and take control of my life in eternity. And I will serve you as you give me strength all the days of my life. Lord, thank you for hearing these prayers. And thanking, thank you for making a way for us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. If you made that commitment, I want you to take your dogwood response card. Look on the back side in the top left-hand corner. It says, my decision today. And the top statement says, I prayed and asked Jesus into my life. That's what I just ask you to do. If you did that, would you take, check that statement? Turn in your card when the offering baskets are passed. And um, I've got a packet of information called a Getting Started with Christ packet that I'd like to send to you that will just help you now begin this new uh, relationship with, with Christ. Some of you uh, heard enough of this for the first time today that it's starting to make sense, but you need a little more time. Well, I'd like for you to check, go across the top of that card to the top right-hand corner. Check the statement that says, I'm interested in knowing how to commit my life to Christ. I'd like to send you some further information, some reading, um, and uh, also we'll be in contact with you confidentially just to see if you'd like some spiritual coaching and uh, let me know. The third step we take has already been celebrated in our service today, and that's confessing Christ before other people. Really, there are no such thing as secret disciples, secret followers of Jesus. He uh, asks us to go public with our faith, and the formal way he designed to celebrate uh, our faith, newfound faith in Him is through believers' baptism like two already did in the service today. If you're interested in being baptized, check that statement on your card and our team will be in touch with you and help you celebrate that baptism. Well, we're going to continue celebrating this miracle of God coming in the flesh with a beautiful song called the Advent Hymn. You, in, you join in. You enjoy it. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you would like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword DOGWOOD to 77977 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcasts, video, and to give.